I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And we're the Trade Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, The Trade Guys welcome another special guest. Dr. Aaron Padilla is the Senior Advisor for International Policy at the American Petroleum Institute, or API, which represents all facets of the oil and natural gas industry. API recently backed the new USMCA agreement and has a lot of irons in the fire when it comes to trade. We'll ask Aaron how the administration's trade policies are playing out on the ground, right here on The Trade Guys. Today, Dr. Aaron Padilla joins The Trade Guys. Aaron's the Senior Advisor for International Policy at the American Petroleum Institute. Aaron, w- what do you do at, the, at API? My main job is to help to convene our member companies to reach our policy positions on a range of international economic issues. So that includes uh, international trade and investment, sanctions, um, and other issues that relate to international commerce. So I'm on the policy side of API. I convene our member companies to come together and discuss what their point of view is for our policy positions on these sort on these sorts of issues. Are, are all your members American companies, or do you have foreign members as yeah, well? Who are the members? Uh, we have over 600 member companies, so it includes a wide range of oil and natural gas companies that represent all segments of the industry from upstream exploration and production through to midstream and transportation down to downstream and retail and marketing. And our members uh, are comprised of U.S. headquartered uh, companies and also many companies that are headquartered outside the United States. So, so give us an example. I mean, you know, not everybody who's listening is knows upstream, downstream, midstream. What, who, who are we talking about here? Okay, so API's members include uh, the largest uh, natural gas and oil companies in the world. That's Chevron and ExxonMobil, two examples of companies. That I've are heard of here. those. Then also Shell and Total and BP, three integrated super major natural gas and oil companies that are headquartered in Europe. Then we have other companies that focus more on one particular segment of our industry. And there, too, there's a mix of U.S. headquartered and non-U.S. headquartered companies. Now, you also probably have some small members, particularly in the unconventional part of the business or in the exploration part. Sometimes those are smaller firms, sometimes even just domestic firms. Yes, we do. On, on a relative scale, uh, we have smaller than those integrated super majors that I mentioned. And those include Chesapeake and Devon and Anadarko, uh, upstream producers. And then we have others that specialize in uh, pipelines and midstream. So Plains All-American Pipeline is an example. So explain to our listeners that even though many or many of these companies are multinational companies, why is it the American Petroleum Institute? Our qualification to be a member of API is that you have a presence in North America. Okay. Uh, we primarily focus on US federal policymaking. So there is a United States-centric focus to our work. But because many of our companies are truly international in nature and have investments in trade in literally every country on earth, there is that international multi, uh, multi kind of lateral dimension to the thinking and the views of our companies. So how does this affect you with an administration that's decidedly America first? Uh, we work very hard to continue to make the case forcefully to this administration that there are still U.S. interests 
that are tied positively to the integration of our economy to global markets, and that there are benefits that flow to U.S. energy consumers, and that there are U.S. jobs that are predicated on international trade and international investment in the energy sector. So we're able to boil down the global reach of our industry to some U.S.-centric benefits that this administration definitely cares about. So what happens when you have trade conflict. What's your role? Our role at API is to convene our members to understand the impacts on their businesses and the impacts then on the U.S. economy. And then we work to articulate to policymakers our point of view on policy that we think would help to protect and promote the benefits of international trade and investment. And then we also work to explain to them the positive and the negative uh, benefits or detriments that occur when one particular policy is pursued versus another. A lot of what goes on in the oil and gas industry is integrated across uh, national borders. At least I understand that, at least in the United States, U.S. refineries in Louisiana and elsewhere refine a lot of both Canadian and Mexican oil, for instance, but also Venezuelan crude and many other sort of foreign sourced crude, as well as the, the domestic production. Is that still the case or is that is that getting less uh, less international or more? That's definitely still the case. If you take North America, Canada, the United States, and Mexico, it's a perfect illustration of the integrated and interdependent nature of oil and natural gas markets. There are over 80 refineries in the United States that import crude oil from Canada or Mexico. Then they take that crude oil and they refine it into products that we all use, gasoline, diesel, uh, kerosene, other things like that. Some of those products, those refined products, are used by us here in the United States, and so they are flow into the U.S. market that we use as energy consumers. And some of those products are exported out again uh, to other foreign markets. Um, interestingly, Mexico is a perfect il- illustration of how we import crude oil that's produced in Mexico to refineries, as you mentioned, on the Gulf Coast in the United States, very close to Mexico. And then they refine that crude oil into products that are then re-exported into the Mexican market because there is a limit to the capacity that Mexico has to refine its own products that its own domestic consumers need. So there's this natural and integrated interdependence between the U.S. and Mexico when it comes to energy markets. So do you think you've been able to successfully explain that to this administration? Yes, I think that we have. And the challenge that I think everyone in the business community encountered when the Trump administration um, came to power and started to really question in their policymaking uh, NAFTA and the underpinnings of an integrated North American economy was, well, what does the current market look like? How much have we benefited or not from the existing NAFTA? How much do do we depend on trade and investment across the the borders? And I think we all reacquainted ourselves um, with the reality And the reality showed us an even greater level of integration than I think we even expected as we were working to tell the story to policymakers. And what we found over time with Republicans and Democrats in Congress and with uh, officials in the Trump administration is a growing uh, appreciation for the integration of our markets and uh, care that needs to be taken in trying to work to change that in any way through the negotiation to update now. So does the there's a new agreement? I mean that surprises yeah. me a little bit that they that they get it. Well, not not that they get it, but that they see your point of view because their point of view seems to be very different. There yeah, some, why did you win? Well, I think that there are uh, – f- first, it's because the the economic picture 
uh, shows the benefits of integration through trade and foreign investment. You also have an industry that has dramatically changed circumstances since the original NAFTA went into force in 1994. At that time, the U.S. Uh, policy was basically based on the events of the energy crisis of the 70s, and we still had sort of a scarcity uh, philosophy when it came to policymaking. Mexico, on the other hand, had an absolute ban on foreign participation in its sector at the constitutional level. Uh, so it seems like a whole different world today with the U.S. production, uh, unconventional gas and oil, and, uh, and liberalization in Mexico. What's the story? How did it work out? That's right. The story is completely different today than it was in 1994. That's primarily because of surging production of natural gas and oil in the United States. The United States has now risen to the level of the world's number one producer of oil and natural gas, a complete change from the mindset that we all have when thinking back to the 1970s and the way in which the United States was utterly dependent on foreign producers for the energy needs that we have. And then the opening market in Mexico after being nationalized and closed to foreign investment for over 70 years, starting in 2013, Mexico has opened its energy markets again to foreign investors. So the surging production in the United States uh, and the possibility for U.S. investment in Mexico has led to a lot of opportunities for the United States. And the ultimate benefits for us as a country with this surging production are that it's an insurance policy for us in terms of foreign policy. It gives us a lot more options than if we were dependent on crude oil imports from the Middle East and from other places. Bolsters our national security. And it also provides a real engine for um, economic growth here in the United States. There are nearly 11 million jobs in the US that are supported by oil and natural gas. And so that's another way in which we benefit from the surging production in the US. Yes, my relatives in Ohio happen to be uh, have uh, have uh, placed themselves on the Utica shale. And uh, many of them, including an uncle of mine, are, are actively involved in the production and distribution work that's going on. And they seem pretty happy last I saw them. So do they know they were doing that when they, were, when oh, they no. moved there? No, it's it's funny. It's funny you should say it. My father-in-law has a natural gas well in his backyard. Yep, that's in, quite, in Ohio, quite common or in, in outside North of Cleveland. Ohio. Yeah. yeah, it's the coolest thing. And you go back into the you know in, past the pasture and you see it, and it's just right there. And you, you could be. Well, I'm the odd one out. My family has never made a nickel off of the off of the industry. I didn't say we made a nickel. I just said we had a we had we had a. Well, speaking of making a nickel, can you give us sort of a sort of a bottom line evaluation of the of the the new agreement the USMCA you know 0 to 10 is it a 10 is it a 5 does it make things worse so API member companies like a lot in the business community went into our advocacy to the Trump administration on these negotiations with the mantra of do no harm uh, the business community's view was that NAFTA 1.0 and free trade generally has been a positive for the U.S. economy and a positive for, for industry that relies on that sort of trade and integration. Coming out the back end now, um, API member companies support the USMCA, and we will be advocating for U.S. Congress to pass the agreement and for it to succeed the, the NAFTA um, on a scale of 1 to 10. Um, it's not perfect. Um, there are elements of it that are worse than the old NAFTA. There are some elements of it that are, for our industry included, are truly modernized and are better for uh, than, than the old NAFTA. So on balance, we get to a, a level of support. Well, give us a little bit about what's better and what's worse. One particular um, set of issues that are better in our industry, it's a very particular set of things for uh, energy. 
there is a greater flexibility in the certification that U.S. importers can provide to customs officials to demonstrate that the crude oil or the natural gas that is coming from Canada or Mexico originated in Canada or Mexico. And when you can prove that, then you get zero tariffs. You get NAFTA treatment. Uh, before, there were some more rigid requirements for the documentation that you had to produce. Now there's more flexibility. So that's an example of modernization. And by, by the way, that is true in a number of other areas yes. where they changed the rules of origin basically to simplify and eliminate paperwork. So yes. I think that's yeah, a net gain. This. So this, this means we don't have to go to extra lengths to prove the authenticity of the product? Is that right? Well, yes. Look, every, every preferential trade agreement like the NAFTA or like the USMCA has a set of requirements for who gets the preferences. And those requirements are, are spelled out in the rules of origin, but there are ways to certify that your product qualifies for the preference under those rules. They can be really complicated as they are for automobiles and, in fact, in autos, uh, USMCA rules are, are on balance much more complicated or they can be simplified and many industries, as Bill points out, including – uh, hydrocarbons appears to be benefit from the simplification. But it's not an insignificant issue because they have, uh, you know, this oil is kind of a fungible product. It's not immediately visible just by looking at it where it came from, I think. And so certification is important because the idea of a preferential agreement is you restrict the benefits, which in this case are zero tariffs, to the stuff that's coming from the three countries. So you need to know if it's come from somewhere else. But that, in turn, creates an administrative burden on companies because they're the ones that have to provide the proof. Uh, and that means they have to track, audit, keep records, and then present all this stuff to the to the government at various times. All right. Well, the new president-elect of Mexico, um, this is AMLO, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, announced on Sunday that uh, Mexico will stop exporting crude oil and will instead focus on production for internal use when he takes office December 1st. Put this in perspective, Mexico consistently ranks as the third biggest seller of crude oil and products to the U.S. after Canada and Saudi Arabia. What's this going to mean for us or for them? It will inevitably have to play out over a longer period of time in order for the new president in Mexico to realize the full nature of this ambition. Right now, we have a very integrated market between the U.S. and Mexico with products, as we were describing, flowing across the border in mutually beneficial ways, in beneficial ways that are economically efficient for consumers as well. So the ambitions that the new president has in Mexico to uh, produce more at home, use what they produce at home to manufacture and refine the products that they consume um, is, in an energy equation sense, possible. But mm -hmm. it will require significant new investments, especially in refining capacity in Mexico that are um, large in nature and difficult to pull off in practicality. And so I think that we'll have to wait and see how quickly Mexico may be able to move in this direction and whether it will be competitive and efficient for their own consumers for them to do this rather than rely on the significant benefits that they get currently from importing refined products from US refineries just across the border. So it's basically a government regulatory initiative to serve a political end, which is uh, energy independence or something like that, that will come at a cost to consumers. We've talked about uh, the, our, the USMCA's new auto rules as being the same thing. They, uh, the political objective is more jobs in the US. The cost it will be borne by consumers in the form of more expensive cars. So that's, the, that's an interesting thing to watch. But given the absence of refining capacity in Mexico now, this is, this is a project that has some dollar signs or, or some peso signs associated with it. Uh, in the, for, for a long time. 
There are six refineries currently in Mexico that are all owned and operated by Pemex, the national oil company. They all operate at a lower utilization rate than their counterpart refineries in the United States, meaning that they don't run nearly to the capacity that they were designed to run at in order to produce the products that they could because. produce. Because of underinvestment over time, because of a lack of efficiency in the way that they've been operated, in contrast to the honed competitiveness and efficiency of U.S. refineries. Well, Pemex has been sort of the piggy bank for the Mexican government for most of its existence. So in Mexico, in order to realize the president-elect's new ambitions, they would need to bring the capacity of their existing six refineries up to a level on par with U.S. refineries and add new refinery capacity. That costs billions and billions of dollars in investment, which in Mexico, if it's not going to come from the private sector, would need to come from the government's budgets. And so there's also a calculus that the new president is going to have to make as to what they can afford to do. So are, 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 are American oil companies uh, uh, interested in investing in refineries there? We don't know yet. Uh, that opportunity hasn't really been offered to foreign investors. Um, I think that uh, generally speaking, API member companies, which include many companies that own and operate refineries in the United States and around the world, would take a close look at that and potentially view it as a promising opportunity, much as they have had the opportunity to invest in the midstream, the pipeline and transportation segments of the Mexican market that have opened up, and especially the upstream, the exploration and production parts of the Mexican market that have opened up that many API member companies have successfully been able to um, enter because of their competitive winning uh, bids in bid rounds that Mexico has had since they opened up their sector. Well, this midstream is a big deal for the industry, if I understand it. Like, for instance, the Permian Basin in Texas is one of the largest oil and gas reserves in the world. And there is now a, a demand for uh, for natural gas in electrician, electricity uh, generating plants in northern Mexico. But there's no pipeline that connects the Permian Basin in Texas to the to the, the facilities, electric generating plants in northern Mexico. Is that one of the sort of the mid-range mid projects that you did, you, you did include in that list? Yes, that's right, Scott. Uh, one of the main challenges that we have in the United States is where can we find markets for our surging production in natural gas and oil? Um, we will always still have some imports of crude oil uh, from other places and then exports of refined products. It's, 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 a, it's a mix and a match. But what we currently have is surging production, as you mentioned, of crude oil in the Permian Basin in West Texas that in part needs to find global markets, Mexico and, and beyond, and uh, natural gas in the Permian Basin that needs to find global markets. And so um, the United States' challenge in policymaking is to promote the greatest extent that we can the ability for our surging production to find markets that uh, can can use those products. Maybe that's a good a good segue into the question of, of China, which sure. has been a market but seems to have sharply declined. Yeah, the U.S. Recently. oil exports to China have slowed to a trickle, and the trade spat between Washington and Beijing is uh, is there's a reversal in upending global. Uh, crude trade flows and forcing uh, American producers to find new buyers. That's right. Uh, the Section 301 tariffs and the Section 301 catalyzed dispute between the United States and China um, gives uh, us a good opportunity to see how um, business can be impacted and U.S. interests can be impacted negatively in, in the short run. So the energy sector, our sector, is a good example of that. On the incoming side, 
U.S. tariffs that make imports from China more expensive make energy infrastructure more expensive because we rely on the imports of many, many industrial components that are produced in China and then come into the United States that eventually get put into energy infrastructure in the U.S. and beyond. So that's the negative effect on the incoming side. Uh, Andrew, you mentioned the outgoing side, which yeah. is also another illustration of the. Well, let me, let me just give you the the scope of this. China was the biggest buyer of U.S. crude oil in the first half of this year, but in August, the U.S. crude exports to China uh, fell to zero, um, and. This is in September, only 30,000 barrels a day of U.S. oil um, went to China from an, down from an average of 350,000 barrels in the year up until July. Right. And interestingly, the um, drop in U.S. crude oil exports to China has not yet been the product of any retaliatory tariffs from right. China. Because there is no they, tariff on it. They, they threatened to do it. And um, so far, they haven't implemented any retaliation on crude oil. But right. There's, the, no, there's, just to be sure, there's no tariff on US crude oil coming into China. That's right. But just the, um, the prospect of it and the way in which the Chinese are able to direct the buyers in their economy um, not to buy US crude oil shows the ways in which the trade dispute between the US and China is having these sorts of impacts. Now, so they're now exactly. buying from they're now instead of buying from us, they're buying from Russia and Saudi Arabia, right? And we're selling to who? To make up for it. We're selling to other other markets. So US crude oil is still finding destinations. Um, so there's just this change in the flows globally. But generally, when this happens, when you lose your preferred uh, buyer and your preferred market, which for US crude oil exports is China, then you usually have to offer your product at lesser um, rates to so other buyers. Right. So even though US crude oil exports are finding a destination, um, it's probably not the ideal buyer that you had with the Chinese beforehand. But what a great illustration of sort of the Mex the uh, Chinese approach of tariffs. Yes. We don't need those sticking tariffs. Mm -hmm. We'll just stop buying. <laughs> well, we've talked, <laughs> we've talked lead, about this. Lead with their feet. We've talked about this before because, uh, you know, the, many people have commented on the disparity between the, the amount of uh, US, uh, Chinese imports in the United States and the amount of U.S. exports into China and how they can't possibly retaliate on tariffs to the same extent that we have assessed tariffs on them because we only ship them $135 billion and they ship us $500 or so billion, mm -hmm. whatever the, uh, the number is. Uh, but one of the things that we've talked about before is they've got a lot of other tools. And this yeah. is a good example of the other tool, right. uh, that people just mysteriously are not buying American crude anymore. And yes, they're that buying, could easily happen you know, on airplanes as well. You know, they're just yes. – I don't reasons, think it's a mystery. Yeah. Uh, I know you said that sarcastically, but – Not but, a mystery. But, but so it's a non-mystery. So w what do you tell your members? Uh, this is well, quite a landscape change. Yes, and and the the obvious tools that the Chinese have to retaliate are affecting U.S. oil and natural gas as well. So they have implemented a ten percent retaliatory tariff on U.S. LNG exports, liquefied to, natural gas. Yes, and that also has a negative impact on U.S. surging production of natural mm -hmm. gas. It needs to find global export markets because we're the largest world's largest producer world's largest of LNG producer of, of natural gas. And so and, they're and just also, putting that LNG on a boat doesn't mean it gets delivered. You have to have a delivery terminal. There has to be infrastructure involved on both the distribution and the receiving end to, for that transaction to work. Just and a small have, aside to this too. You know, this doesn't just affect your industry. This affects the shipping industry.
industry because the shippers are having these long and expensive routes to China. Now they don't have that anymore. They're going to have to ship it somewhere else, shorter and cheaper. So it, it has ripple effects throughout the economy. Yes. And we have many LNG export facilities in the United States that are being proposed. Mm -hmm. um, and that is to take advantage of the export opportunities of the natural gas in the United States that can be liquefied and then shipped to global export markets. Most of those that have not yet reached a decision for final investment, which they haven't reached the point of being commercially viable, um, need to secure long-term contracts with buyers primarily in Asia and primarily in China in order to become financially viable. When you have the uncertainty and the greater cost from the retaliatory tariff of LNG exports from the US to China, you start to jeopardize the ability of the United States to bring as many of these LNG export terminals to uh, reality as well, What's as a typical possible. terminal cost, how, uh, roughly speaking? These are multi-billion dollar investments. Okay. So those are, think of it as, as, as massive billion, multi-billion dollar construction projects on hold because of this. Right. Also a lot of jobs. A lot of jobs, jobs in construction. construction. What is going on at the other end? Because the infrastructure has to be at both ends. Has there been a decline in construction of, of receiving terminals in, in Asia or anywhere? That depends on the country. Uh, a big market with um, financial and economic wherewithal like China doesn't have a problem in building the infrastructure to regasify and receive LNG that they need to import for their own energy needs. Smaller countries that have less financial resources available um, still struggle to, struggle to put that infrastructure into place. And so that is certainly a missing link that also needs to be connected for US LNG to reach, reach its maximum mm -hmm. potential. And coming back to your question, Andrew, what we say to the administration is to take care. We are in the middle of a trade dispute that is continuing to escalate. We're already feeling the negative impacts on US interests across a range of sectors, energy included. And there are certainly changes that we all agree we want to see in terms of China's practices and policies for trade and investment. But we need to be careful to be precise about what we really want and about what we really think can be achieved so that the economic negative impacts that we are feeling in the short term will be worth some long-term gain that is actually achievable. So we are communicating to the administration, here's exactly what's at stake, let's take care. And with regards to China's practices and policies, here's what we think would be meaningful in terms of changes, and here's what we think would be achievable in terms of your negotiations with the Chinese. Are they receiving this message from you? Yes. And I think we are not alone in transmitting these more precise um, uh, recommendations to the administration. And I think that we're seeing now some balancing in the administration of um, a kind of strategy and uh, tactics and asks that we are going to have of the Chinese as we get to some more concerted negotiations that we expect will take place in the coming months. So ultimately, you want to help them build the strategy. That's right. I think that the point of departure and the conclusions that the US reached in its investigation that was catalyzed by the Section 301 authorities that the president used um, revealed a consensus among policymakers, the business community, and all close observers of Chinese practices and policies, where there has been some disagreement is how do we get from here 
to there and changing some of those in a way that makes the economic harm that we're experiencing now worthwhile and not enduring over the long term if there's no way out of an ever-escalating dispute. It's a recurring uh, uh, theme that we run across with uh, this administration. Correct uh, theory of the problem, uh, questionable uh, action plan to solve the problem. So, And unknown strategy for a lot of it, right? That's the, so far, so that's what we've seen, yes. So how do you go about shaping strategy in an administration that isn't always so transparent with its strategies? And and for and and to their, you know, what they'll say is we don't want to telegraph our moves. That's why our strategy isn't so transparent because we don't want to tell them what we're about to do. This is how we do business. So how how do you operate in that environment? There's two main ways that a trade association that represents the collection of sectoral business interests goes about this sort of advocacy. The first is to put all of our arguments in terms of the priorities of the current administration. This goes for any administration. For this administration, it's couching everything in terms of US jobs and US benefits. And that's possible and easy to do when you have a surging sector like ours that provides so many of those benefits, whatever lens you're looking at it. And you have clear metrics you can We, we point talk to. about U.S. energy security and the benefits of energy production and energy exports and energy, energy integration for U.S. foreign policy. We talk about U.S. domestic economic growth and the way in which our industry supports those nearly 11 million jobs uh, that are tied to oil and natural gas. And then we also... Um, so first is quantifying and characterizing everything in terms that the administration understands, which is the U.S. benefits of jobs and other ways in which you um, promote U.S. interests. And then um, secondly is a, a diligent and um, relentless um, articulation of ways in which we think that the specific provisions of a negotiation, whether it be on uh, tariffs, um, whether it be on a trade agreement like NAFTA and the USMCA, um, can be shaped in such a way that um, support the US benefits that we've articulated to them. Sometimes that's not always apparent. Sometimes it may seem to this administration that it's ideologically opposed to a view that they have or to a direction that they're going. What we've said on energy is let's take stock of where we have benefits from increased integration and from free trade. And let's empirically be honest about those and take those into account when we enter into the negotiations. And then we've also said, and let's think about our sector in terms of um, what it actually represents for the USMCA and for NAFTA. Our industry invests in places like Canada and Mexico because we go where the resources are found. Um, we're not an industry that is engaged in um, practices that this administration um, wants to try and curtail, like offshoring of manufacturing for reasons that they don't think are um, fair. Um, our, what we've articulated is that our industry goes where there are hydrocarbons. And when you can pr promote trade in hydrocarbons across borders, and when you can promote US investment in hydrocarbon markets outside the United States, the benefits flow back to the United States. And that isn't always apparent or known. And so you try and articulate those in all the particular characterizations and ways that an administration can best understand. Well, a good example of that, getting getting back to, we, we, didn't, we never finished my question about what was good about it and what was bad about the USMC 
NCA, it seems to me that that one of the key questions is the investor state dispute settlement uh, mechanism where you guys, at least on paper, were one of the winners in the sense that uh, it went away in Canada, but it's still there in Mexico uh, for you and a couple other sectors, I guess four or five altogether. Yes. But it seems to be there in a truncated form with a longer exhaustion uh, remedy uh, and a requirement and a narrower um, set of standards. So, is this a net plus? Is this a problem for you? Where, where do you guys come out on it? Yes, you're right in exactly the way that you described uh, investment protections and ISDS in the new USMCA. Um, there are the same set of investment protections that all of the countries agree to with regards to foreign investors in their markets. And then there are some more limited um, circumstances that provide eligibility for investor state dispute settlement for any private investor who may suffer from a breach of those investment protections by a government that hosts them. Um, our sector was fortunate in that we were able to preserve the eligibility for ISDS for US investors in oil and natural gas in Mexico, but not in Canada. And our view also is that even though we were fortunate as a sector, we still believe that ISDS coupled with investment protections is good for the United States and good for all sectors. There shouldn't be a differentiation made between Canada and Mexico. There shouldn't be a differentiation made between the oil and natural gas sector and another sector. I think where we ended up is one that our, got to a point where our member companies um, felt provided them with a sufficient alignment with our policy position for us to be able to support the newest, new USMCA. But we don't view it as a precedent. We continue to articulate that investment protections and ISDS is good for the US and good for all sectors. And we should continue to try and fight for that full coverage in all trade agreements. I have a feeling that your, your good fortune here was not just the product of luck. This is something that the industry worked pretty hard on, wasn't it? Yes, we've been very relentless and forceful in our advocacy. And for an association like ours that represents so many US jobs, we engage with an administration and with policymakers in Congress at all levels, all the time. And, and it didn't hurt that the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee is from Houston. Yes. And, and <laughs> I would have used that <clears throat> if I were in your shoes, that's for sure. But, but we, we, we believe that this is a, a, the U.S. benefits of investment protections and ISDS um, are sound. Um, and yes. I think the other opportunity that we have with the new USMCA is to reset the debate on this issue. And I think that the USMCA also contains some provisions in its investment chapter that address concerns of those who have expressed reservations about ISDS. There are provisions that address concerns about the conflicts of interest that could uh, be present for arbitrators in these disputes. There are provisions that clarify what this can be used for and what it can't be used for. There's long been a misperception that ISDS can be used by corporations to challenge regulations that they don't like in other markets. No, it's that's, breaches of the of the treaty. It's 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 governments conducting themselves in a way that are contrary to the obligations of the treaty. That's so. right. That's right, Scott. And even though um, that's always been the case, I think that there are. There's a provision in the USMCA that makes this very explicit. Yeah. And so it's a good opportunity for all of us to try to uh, re reset 
what this is meant to accomplish and show that it's not uh, it's not there to be used for things it was never able to be used for. It's actually only to bring a claim against a government that treats you in a discriminatory fashion vis-a-vis your domestic competitors. Does the fact that it's going away for Canada um, bother you at all? Does it make any difference there? Yes, it does. We would have preferred that uh, eligibility for ISDS would have been retained for U.S. investors in any sector um, in Canada. Um, It's not always the case that when you have two markets like the U.S. and Canada with very mature, independent judiciaries and court systems that um, you can find um, recourse in the domestic courts or that you won't have a state that would breach one of its investment protections. So we would still prefer for all markets and all trade partners in the U.S. to have to sign on to this, including the U.S. Well, Canada, despite its its well-developed judiciary, is among OECD members or among rich industrial countries, it is the leading uh, uh, market for for a leading economy for disputes where they are the respondent. So there's a lot been a, a number they're the of the biggest defendants. They're the biggest defendant as another way to say among OECD members. So there's there was a reason for that protection in the first place. I know a number of small American companies have utilized it over the years in NAFTA pretty effectively. So we'll see how this goes. I mean for me, this is obviously it's all a, a political calculation. <clears throat> my uh, my main concern is that that the administration will have alienated the supporters of neutral arbitration for investment uh, protections, alienated the supporters and not satisfied the opponents and sort of fallen between the bar stools politically. So, Well, and Trudeau doesn't even want to call it the USMCA. He wants to call it the new NAFTA. Well, how does it translate into French? That would be the <laughs> defining characteristic. I, I wonder Canadian if he, policy. if he, like us, just keeps hearing the village people in the background <laughs> every time USMCA gets mentioned. I mean, can you imagine that torture? You know, he feels like maybe he didn't get the exact best agreement at the same time he's got to hear. And no offense to the village people, great music, right? I mean, sort of. Speak not, for not, yourself. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll just say they memorable were you know, music. memorable music. Yeah, but you got to hear that same theme song every time. I mean, I, I don't know. He's. Um, it's a mess, isn't it? It's interesting to watch him because he's now entirely predictably under attack by the political opposition in Canada, right. which is doing exactly what the political oppositions everywhere do, yeah. uh, criticizing what he's done. Right. A lousy deal. Yeah. He got a lousy deal. Bad he sold deal. out the country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Got a bad deal foisted on him by the ultimate. Yes, not the, only is it a bad deal, right. but he got taken to the cleaners by Donald by, Trump, by Trump, who, Trump right. whose, whose popularity in, Mex- in, in Canada is not particularly high. Probably a little bit higher than it is in Mexico, but not well, much. Well, I think I think he's above uh, dandruff, but probably <laughs> below dryer lint. <laughs> that's that's an image. That is an image. <laughs> Part of it is about sovereignty, and there's these this collection of pro- provisions in the agreement, beginning with the, the so-called China Clause, which I think we discussed uh, last week, where the opposition, the Canadian opposition, is arguing that. We essentially have given ourselves, the United States, the ability to interfere in Canadian trade policy and to direct what they do or do not do in a number of areas. Personally, I don't buy it, but it seems to be an issue up there. Well, we'll have to wait till the next election campaign to see how much of this continues to resonate. Well, and, and pretty soon you're going to have a new leader in Mexico that um, can, you know, AMLO can be annoyed with Donald Trump or 
Trudeau or who. I mean, it just adds There's to the- There's plenty of time to be annoyed with, pre- the, with the president, yes. You guys don't sound like you're annoyed with the president, though. You sound like you have a good working relationship with the administration. Generally, we try to have a good working relationship with any administration. I think on balance, we've- <laughs> That's a very smooth dreadful. answer, yes. On, on, on balance, very, I think yeah. we, we have achieved that with, yeah. with this president, Andrew. Um, and we, But we're just articulating the energy benefits um, that accrue from all of this policymaking to, to, to the U.S. And- that's a, we characterize it in different ways for different presidents and different administrations to appeal to their understanding of issues. Um, but we're, we're confident that we have kind of a, a, a bipartisan set of benefits that will you know transcend transitions from one administration. Well, what, what's the next big issue for you? Well, wait, let me let me follow up one one thing. Actually, it is the a next big issue. What happens when the United States in negotiating future agreements? maybe the Philippines, uh, Europe, uh, Japan, when they want to uh, put in the same ISDS provision that they've got with Mexico. Are you guys going to be for that, or are you going to press them to go back to the original broader provision? We'll continue to press for uh, the original broader provision, which is um, present in the U.S. model bilateral investment treaty. Uh, We think that there are opportunities for each individual negotiation um, to um, take into account the particularities of that trade and investment relationship. We think that there are U.S. benefits in any instance for going back to the fuller provisions and we'll continue to advocate well, and for Well, for a nation that advocates equal treatment under law, it's a little odd to see that some investors are more equal than others. Unless yes. you're the one that's more equal, like them. <laughs> You want to be more equal. I desperately want to be more equal, but I'm not. I'm not in the- In my eyes, you're community. first among equals. <laughs> this is like Animal Farm, you know, yeah. but and they're the, I don't know who's- <laughs> it's a, just like Animal Farm. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Does that make them the pigs? Is that- Well, uh, well I, I prefer you know, not to draw that conclusion. Does it? Sorry. Uh, an excellent industry. <laughs> that, that's great. On the way out of the podcast, insult the guest. That's always a good idea. <laughs> Is it an insult or a compliment? No. Uh, well, compliment. We'll, 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 I guess we'll, we'll, that will be another they're, episode. Uh, primos right? inter pares. They're the first among equals. That's and right. so they've done a marvelous job of helping to shape the agreement, I think, in ways, in ways that allow you to support it. Uh, not perfect, as you said, but uh, you came out of this, I think, better than some others. And given and your you industry's powers, of, for powers our economy, it's important to have the industry in a way that continues to produce efficiently and continues to de- deal with the growth in U.S. energy consumption. But the important issue is, is what Scott said earlier. You are different than others in that you have to go where the resource is. Procter & Gamble, with all due respect to Scott's longtime firm, when they go overseas, they have a big choice. They can locate anywhere according to whatever criteria they want to establish. But most uh, of the time, they make close to the consumer because the distribution costs are still a problem. A local establishment still matters. So, but it, but it is it is a choice. It's not it's not as straightforward. They're as they're tied. They're not going to go to a place that has no oil. Right. You know? yeah. So you you are tied to it. And I think you had success. Um, I know when I had conversations with the administration about that, uh, I tried to make a distinction between uh, resource based industries and and energy is not the only one. There's mining and mm-hmm. a variety of others who really are tied to the, the raw material that they're extracting. Uh, and that makes them different from people that are in the retail business. Well, fascinating discussion. Dr. Aaron Padilla, thanks for hanging with the trade guys today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. To our listeners, 
If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.